Welcome to Heroin City, the podcast shining a light on women in history in all their glorious shapes and forms, efforts, errors and eras. I'm Lindsay Shaw and today we are discussing the pioneering Chinese-American film star, Anna Mae Wong. Wong became the first Chinese-American star of the golden age of Hollywood at the age of 17. Frustrated about the limiting role she was given, as well as the one she was looked over for, as a woman of colour in the Hollywood system, her reaction was to leave for a successful working stint in Europe. Wong continued to work throughout her four-decade career, achieving more firsts as the first Asian-American lead in a TV series in 1951's The Gallery of Madden Lu Song. More recently, she became the first Asian-American to appear on US currency. Introducing our guest today, we have Yunt Huang. He is a distinguished professor of English at the University of California, Santa Barbara. A Guggenheim Fellow, he is the author of Transpacific Displacement, Transpacific Imaginations and Chinese Whispers. His creative non-fiction book, Charlie Chan, in 2010, won the Edgar Award and was the National Book Critics Circle Award finalist. His Inseparable, in 2018, also a finalist for the NBCC Award, was named Best Book of the Year by the New York Times, NPR and Newsweek. His new book, the third and final instalment of his Rendezvous with America trilogy, Daughter of the Dragon, Anna Mae Wong's Rendezvous with American History, is available now. Its synopsis states... Born into the steam and starch of a Chinese laundry, Anna Mae Wong, 1905-1961, emerged from turn-of-the-century Los Angeles to become old Hollywood's most famous Chinese actress, a screen siren who captivated global audiences and signed her publicity photos with a touch of defiance, orientally yours. Now more than a century after her birth, Yun Huang narrates Wong's tragic life story, retracing her journey from Chinatown to silent-era Hollywood and from Weimar Berlin to decadent pre-war Shanghai and capturing American television in its infancy. As Huang shows, Wong's rendezvous with history features a remarkable parade of characters, including a smitten Walter Benjamin and an equally smitten Marlene Dietrich. Challenging the periodically racist perceptions of Wong as a dragon lady, Madame Butterfly or China doll, Huang's biography becomes a truly resonant work of history that reflects the raging anti-Chinese xenophobia, unabashed sexism and ageism towards women that defined both Hollywood and America in Wong's all too brief 56 years on earth. Welcome through the gates of Heroin City, Professor Yunt Huang. Thank you. Could you please tell us what you do and where you are at the minute? Well, I'm a professor of English at the University of California in Santa Barbara. It's a beautiful city, as you may or may not know. In all those old Hollywood movies, they always say, you know, if you're bored in L.A., you know, then let's drive down to Santa Barbara for a weekend. That's where I am. Fantastic. So, you know, obviously in between the beach trips... You're working hard and you've just released a book, which is why we have you here on the podcast to talk about Anna Mae Wong, who I remember seeing the statue on Hollywood Boulevard in La Brea. It's quite an iconic silver statue and there were four women that represented the pillars and Anna Mae Wong was one of the pillars. And I remember at that moment realising there was a lot more to this person that I perhaps had first known. My first experience of her would have been Shanghai Express, the Dietrich film that I watched. And I think personally, she stole the film from Marlene Dietrich. I think so. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so that was my, so instantly I was like, I need to know more. Cut to now with your release of your brand new book. For everyone that perhaps doesn't know your work and doesn't know Anime Wong, could you please tell us a bit about your work and your research and why you came to write the book? Yes, so my newest book, uh, Daughter of the Dragon, Anime Wong's Rendezvous with American History, uh, is actually the third installment uh, of this trilogy, which, which I call rendezvous with america as you see i'm a sort of like a mystery buff <laughs> and i love the word rendezvous you know the the noirish quality about it and but of course um it, it takes me back to the first book of the trilogy which is charlie chan uh, who is a chinese detective you know it's a very controversial uh, cultural icon in the united states um because while he still today has millions of fans, uh, people thought he was funny and uh, smart and talking in a weird way, like a Hercule Poirot, right? That quirky character. Uh, a lot of Asian Americans, on the other hand, found him to be quite offensive because uh, he sort of perpetuates uh, these stereotypes about Chinese or Asian Americans, you know? And so uh, that's my first book. And uh, in that book, I actually go back to 
uh, the original Charlie Chan, who turned out to be a real person, a, a Cantonese cop in Honolulu, Hawaii, that, who is quite a legend, you know, in that city. And so he was actually the real inspiration behind the fictional uh, novel character and then film icon later on. So that's my first book. And that was followed by uh, Inseparable, the original Siamese twins, Chang and M. Bunker, who were born in Siam, today called Thailand. And uh, they were basically sold into slavery, unfortunately, by their mother. Two American owners who brought them to the United States. Uh, later on, actually, they went to England to uh, show themselves at Piccadilly. So they were regarded as a, um, a freak show, subhuman freak show celebrity. But they were very smart uh, businessmen. Uh, when they eventually got free from their owners, they continued to you know, travel around the world, showing them, displaying themselves and to make money. And eventually they made a lot of money and retired very comfortably to a small town in North Carolina where they married two white sisters and had 21 children. So they got really busy. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then um, they, they became slave owners themselves. So it's very kind of fascinating, but mind-boggling uh, story. So now I have uh, Anime Wong. In a minute, I'm going to explain who she is and what her story is. But overall, the trilogy is, you know, is concerned with the Asian-American story in the making of American history and culture. So Charlie Chang is about... Uh, racial ventriloquism, Hollywood racism, and the portrayal of Chinese in the midst of yellow peril kind of discourse and all that. And the UK is not, you know, exempt from that. It's actually a big part of this um, piece with Limehouse Fiction, you know, Thomas Burke, and especially Sax Roma, Dr. Fu Manchu was actually, you know, made in UK. So in a minute, we can talk about that because Anime One is part of that story. So overall, I'm interested in telling the Asian-American story in, in American history, in other words. So here's Annamie Wong. And who is Annamie Wong? Well, first of all, she was a film icon, but she was born in a very kind of, uh, I would say she had a very humble origin, right? Uh, as humble as it, it, you can get. Uh, she was born literally in the laundromat of her father's you know, laundry. Uh, in uh, in LA um, around the turn of the 20th century, 1905. So the daughter of a Chinese laundryman eventually rose to global stardom. And for about, I would say, three or four decades, she was the only kind of real Chinese face on the screen because, as you know, in those years, uh, the standard practice was yellow face that Caucasian actors would put on heavy makeups and to portrayal. Asian characters. And uh, so she, for a while, she was really the only one who, as the, in a minute when we tell, share her story, she's beautiful, talented, and tenacious. Despite all that, you know, she had a degree of success, astonishingly, uh, in that kind of very racist environment. On the other hand, cards are really stacked against her. Her career was really kind of hampered by a lot of the, um, I say, racist elements against her. That tenacity showed itself pretty early, right, in her story, which I, right. when I found out about her star, I just envisaged her as that kind of extra, the, the, the child extra that just kept popping up everywhere. And I just thought, yeah, that shows itself throughout her career, doesn't it? That fact that she was like, no, this is what I'm going to do and this is how I'm yeah. going to do it. So perhaps tell us a little bit about her way into the movies because that's really interesting, I think. Her way into the movie, um, on the one hand, is classical Hollywood story. And Lindsay, since you lived there for five years, so you know the story. And um, so when the movie came about, right, in early, late 19th century and early 20th century, especially when Hollywood, you know, started get going, uh, rising as a, as a culture, as a technology, it's, it's like cell phone today, right, wireless uh, technology today. Film was the wireless technology, I think, in the early 20th century. And who wouldn't want to be part of it, right? So if you're growing up as a young person, especially women, in middle America, you know, if you have any spark of imagination, or you, you will buy a one-way train ticket coming to Hollywood and stepping off uh, Central Station, later on Union Station, trying to make it in Hollywood. Fortunately for Anime One, she didn't need to buy a train ticket. <laughs> Hollywood actually came to her. 
not personally, but Hollywood came to、um, Chinatown, right? So Chinatown in those years,、uh, you know, traffic wasn't so bad, so it's an easy trip across town <laughs> to come to Chinatown to shoot the street scenes. As you know, early film used mostly static camera. They just sit the camera there and take in the street scene, like the like what we call live stream, right? <laughs> no, there's no zoom in or headshot anything, and the actors were not even credited, you know, because it's not about the actors, the stars. In the beginning, was all about what's、uh, in the film. It's it's documentary, some to some extent, right? Yeah, I mean Chinatown provided a free kind of a, a perfect exotic setting. For early filmmakers, so they, so they come to Chinatown a lot, and growing up in the vicinity of Chinatown, Annie Mewan was one of the rubberneckers, and on the one hand, she was fascinated by the prospect of being famous. On the other hand, this is the action, something going on in your neighborhood every day. So she will often play hooky and go to you know not just go to movies but also come to the film shoot. And when she was little, she couldn't really you know、uh, be part of the film. But eventually she made it, and once again, as luck would have it, this is during the Spanish flu, right? The famous Spanish flu. And the, the, this is about you know, COVID was the hundred year later, you know, another Spanish flu sort of, and the people are literally dying on the street. And they were making in、uh, 1918. There were two called the China flicks, meaning films about China or Chinese at that time. Is there called Yellow Flicks or China Flicks? There was like two big China films being made. One was very famous. It's called The Broken Blossom by D.W. Griffith, who made The Birth of Nation, very famous director. And the other one is The Red Lantern, starring Ella Nazimova, who was really the queen of the silent screen you know, in those years. And Animoa eventually made it because the Red Lantern film needed like 600 live Chinese bodies. And who can you get 600 live bodies during the pandemic when everybody was hiding in behind doors, you know, afraid to go out? So she got lucky that way, and so she became one of the three kind of anonymous, unrecognized, uncredited、uh, extras, lantern carriers, and that's really her entry or debut, so-called,、uh, in the film industry. She was third generation, so it was her grandparents that come over initially. And her, you know, being Chinese American, she, like every teenage kid, pushed back against the world she'd known all her sort of childhood life. And then seeing these doors open, she kind of went straight for the flapper, fast-paced girl about town kind of vibe straight away. That was that was her pushback in some senses, and and a lot of women's pushback at that point because it was about emancipation and and you know sexuality and being free. Can we talk a bit maybe about that duality? In her life, the fact that it seems that it was again a theme that went through her whole career and personal life, maybe, but the balance between the two worlds, the American and the Chinese worlds, was always very tricky to get right, you know, for her. Oh, absolutely, you're absolutely right. In a sense, not just in her career, but also you know, her personal life, especially in terms of marriage, dating, romance, and everything. So, yes, absolutely. On the one hand, she grew up in a very traditional Chinese family. Her parents are very traditional Chinese. Like I said, their laundry, you know, run, running the laundromat. The fact that she will try to get into the film business in the beginning, her parents were adamantly against it. Apparently, for various reasons. One, you know,、uh, being an entertainer was never <laughs> considered to be a, a good profession for Chinese women. If you want to have any profession whatsoever, and then secondly. Let's talk about film, the technology, right? So in the beginning, when Animal eventually got into Hollywood, and her mother warned her, say, you know, I wish really you wouldn't make so many pictures because eventually you're gonna lose your soul, right? And this is not just Chinese superstition, but it's also a belief among many people、uh, in America. There was a kind of spiritualism at the time, right? With the with the rise of new technologies such as radio or, or camera or film, people genuinely thought these、uh, machines that will steal your soul. Otherwise, how can you see yourself still alive, going around? Right, <laughs> it has to be part of yourself. So in that sense, you know, the soul snatching machine, which is film technology, her mother warned against her. So we have one on the one hand, this kind of you know, with regard to new technology and new possibilities,、uh, she. 
didn't necessarily have the support of her family, the wholehearted support. But when she became successful, uh, when money started coming in, then of course, um, people are pragmatic in a sense. Okay, if you can help your brothers going to school and everything, fine. So that's one that, that way. And the other, as you said, that's the flapper and the, you know, the new modern woman. And she's definitely part of that, if not just simply a vanguard. For example, uh, when she was in the 1920s, right, she was rising in Hollywood. So let's say 1927, right, not too far from the statue you talk about, you know, Anime One statue and all that, uh, that was the Chinese theater, Grauman Chinese theater. And to me, that's really sort of the shrine of U.S. Orientalism, right? At the heart of Hollywood, there's this quaint-looking Chinese theater. What does that mean? It means, you know, for Hollywood's obsession or fascination with whatever is exotic, because across the street was the Egyptian theater. So at any rate, uh, when that theater was built in 1927, and that was really the height of Hollywood's uh, U.S. kind of Chinese obsession, um, there were at least four China flicks, China films that year. And Anime One was e each one of them. So the paradox at the time was that um, every film need to have anime one in it, but no film can really have her the lead star because of the, the taboo uh, against interracial kissing, for instance, right? So on the one hand, she was really becoming fashionable, trendy as a, you know, as a Chinese girl, a flapper. On the other hand, she realized uh, she can't really get what she wanted or achieve what she wanted to achieve. So she took off, right? She went to Germany. And uh, so she left America as a, like a chic flapper, right? And she arrived in Germany, eventually went to France and the UK, and she really became really famous. Uh, so once again, the irony is that she went to Europe to be recognized as an American, although she was an American. In America, she was just regarded as Chinese. Over there, to use one example, since you're talking about, you know, this kind of traditional woman and then modern woman, uh, in Germany especially, she learned German very quickly and was able to play in a number of uh, German films, including, say, uh, Pavement Butterfly, in which she plays this kind of uh, city flaneur going around. And the re that really is part of the German trend of vamp. Right at the time, there's a kind of new image of women vamp. Marlena Dietrich was one of the you know examples of that. So she kind of very quick and good at adapting to to trends and uh, transforming herself into a different person. And that's really part of her talent. But really, it's her trade as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that you know chameleon like quality is. I mean, it's the mark of a great actress, isn't it? It's someone that can see a role and and assimilate very quickly. Right. I mean, same with the languages, the fact that she picked it up and was filming films in different languages very quickly. It's really impressive. Um, it reminds me of Josephine Baker going over to France and, and having yes. a career, same kind of time, mm -hmm. isn't it? What would you say the difference in the roles were then from the point of view, I've just watched Piccadilly again, and she stands out, jumps out off the screen. And at the time, there was a difference, even though obviously there's a lot of similarities in the racism that was occurring in the industry, but there were differences in the roles that she was getting in Europe? Oh, yes, absolutely. Away from Hollywood, I would say she enjoyed a certain degree of artistic freedom. Uh, I'm not saying, you know, Europe didn't have problems with racism. Far from it. <laughs> you know, she got to Germany in 1928. That's only a few years before the rise of the Nazis. But when, again, let's talk about Piccadilly then. Well, Piccadilly, it's a, it's a different version, right? British Chinatown in Limehouse is different from, say, San Francisco or, or L.A. or New York, for that matter. And uh, Limehouse, and Piccadilly is really part of the Limehouse fiction, right? It's the imagination, kind of yellow peril discourse. Chinese are opium addicts and gamblers, you know, prostitution and everything. And anyone playing this character who is a kitchen maid, uh, but somehow managed to steal the job as the star of the of the club as a dancer. Not only that, she also steals the heart of the the club owner as well. So in a sense, this is like a, kind of the the early version of a Dragon Lady. Uh, later on, she will play when she returns to America. 
And this is kind of early version of that. On the other hand, she's really playing this kind of somewhat innocent Chinese maid, right? Uh, so there's a, there's a hint of uh, Madame Butterfly story in it as well. And this is the film she played. Uh, this is really her real debut, right, in Hollywood, 1922, The Toll of the Sea, which is a Madame Butterfly story, although set in Hong Kong, in which, you know, uh, Asian women have sacrificed themselves for the sake of white men, or love for white men. So, so Piccadilly, the kitchen maid, really mix up these two, you know, you're talking about the different roles, yes. So if you look at the, the spectrum of her career, she was really put in a very tight place, certainly, because of the, the standard practice and the expectations of the audience, and then overall the large, kind of larger cultural environment in which, you know, she didn't have a lot of artistic freedom in order to portray or portray certain roles. And on the other hand, she really tried very hard to create some nuances and all that. So as you see, you know, her roles are really sandwiched between uh, Madame Butterfly and, uh, and the Dragon Lady. Right? Yeah, it's there you can see that there's more of a three-dimensional quality in, in, in the range of what she's playing, yeah. Just to get back to your angle with the book, which is placing her in American history, as with the two books before, do you feel that thus far her role within that milieu has been underappreciated? I definitely think so, yes. Um, despite the fact, you know, she's on the US coin <laughs> money today, uh, but I would like to say, you know, I know, she. I always know that she's on the money, right, in a sense of betting. But even that, you know, as you know, being on the money is a big deal. On the other hand, you can say woman's image has always been exploited anyway, right? Uh, so there's a, a cynical way to, to think about it. Um, and even when she's with her on the money, her image is still exploited <laughs> to some extent, as she, her image, you know, was for all those years, right? Um, so let's talk about that. In terms of underappreciation, I think the biggest misunderstanding of her legacy is really the critique of her role in perpetuating these stereotypes. That's why people say, oh, anime, wow, well, you know, she really perpetuated, she was part of that, she wanted those roles. But really imagine, she worked all those years in the beginning, uh, helping Caucasian actors, such as Mina Loy, you know, Barbara Stanwyck, and you name it, everybody has to do, you know, do a Chinese uh, part uh, in, in, with heavy makeup. And she spent a lot of time coaching these Caucasian stars, how to use chopsticks, how to talk, try to talk Chinese. So eventually there's a role for her. Of course, you would do it. You would do it like, let me show you how to do it. But eventually when she, you know, got to do them, and you are facing with the director, you know, the whole studio will work against you in the sense, oh, that's not the way the Chinese talk, right? And, but she's Chinese, and that's the irony of this. So just give you an example. I mean, you know, Shanghai Express. Yes, that's one of my definitely one of my favorite uh, of Anime Wang films, and she was really great. But in the making of that film, you know, Joseph von Sternberg, right, who is a savant, you know, he 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 wants things the way definitely the way he wants it. So if that, let's talk about that train. Shanghai Express is about a train. So uh, Joseph von Sternberg will hand paint, you know, that train because he was not happy about the shadow, the clouds were cast. <laughs> he was, you know, diligently hand painted the train. And Milan one day saw that and came to say to him and say, well, that's not actually not what the Chinese, uh, Chinese train will look like. And Sternberg said, well, that's what the Chinese train should look like to me. So we are talking about train, but when you talk about acting, the way you talk in the studio, Really, what kind of freedom can you have in terms of pushing back? Because uh, she didn't have her own, you know, she never really had a real contract with like Paramount or any studio, despite the fact she made a lot of money for them. And for Shanghai Express, for instance, uh, you know, and Marlena Dietrich, uh, her salary for the film was about 76000 and Annie Wang's salary was 6000 right? So she was really exploited. Uh, so I would think that's really the biggest misunderstanding of her legacy is that how hard she fought and fought back and what kind of you know possibilities there could be for her. So when we look at her career, and, and that's the reason, for instance, you know, when you um, think about uh, Lucy Liu or Monsieur Yo and everything today, 
you know, they actually are very grateful, right? The most famous example is Lucy Liu. You know, when her star Walk of Fame was installed in Hollywood on the Walk of Fame, the, the same road you walked on many years, uh, Lindsay, on <laughs> <laughs> Hollywood Boulevard. Uh-huh. And uh, Lucy Liu's star was right next to Anime Wong's. And uh, so um, this is exactly, once again, during COVID, 2019, I believe, 100 years, exactly 100 years, 100 years after anyone's debut in a film, Lucy Liu thanked uh, her great aunt, Anime Wong, saying, you know, thank her for, you know, blazing the trail for people like her, Lucy Liu, who was also, by the way, criticized for, again, perpetuating some of the roles like Dragon Lady, like Kill Bill and uh, Charlie's Angel and all that. So we are talking about the possibilities, uh, you know, um, 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 for actors, the larger cultural constraint and, and everything. So we need to understand. That's why I write, you know, wrote this book in order to tell her story and help us understand her legacy in a better way. Yes, and thank you for doing that. When it came to appreciating what she had to go through to keep going, you know, it's kind of, you know, we can talk about where she sits and have an opinion on this and the other, but she was the one living it and she was the one trying to, you know, get better roles for herself like, you know, any actress would. But she was the one that never gave up and kept pushing. And the thing is, we know she was a pioneer, but but think about what it took to be a pioneer, to do those things for the first time. And then she did have a production company, so she did try and create her own work. That was something else that I don't think most people would know about. When did she form that? That was in the United States. Okay. Uh, she was not alone. And there was some earlier, I would say, pioneers in Asian American film production. And actually, the earliest one was actually, I think, very early, 1916 or 17. There's another Wong, Marianne Wong in San Francisco. And she made like, um, uh, today it would be like a YouTuber, sort of, you know, adventure. <laughs> <laughs> she she ha- employed her mother and her neighbor. <laughs> And, you know, put together a set which she borrowed from, like, a, a second-hand, you know, antique shop or something. And she actually seriously wanted to make a production, and she made a film. But, of course, it's okay. It's, I, I will say it's not that difficult to, to make a film, right? even in those years. But distribution, of course, it's always, always about distribution, uh, access and everything. So Marianne Wong was followed by another one, James uh, Leong. And who also was seriously committed to making films, and she he had a, quite a few companies in LA, and uh, so these are people who are actually known to Anime Wong, and for a while Anime Wong thought about that because she was really writing, and of course uh, Sasu Hayakawa, the Japanese star, and he actually did it quite successfully for some number of years until, you know, the sentiment against Japanese really turned in the United States, and that's when. Uh, Hayakawa left. But of course, part of this story uh, we should emphasize, and this Piccadilly is part of this uh, bigger trend as well, and it really shows how tenacious Anime Wang was, is that the film was uh, what transitioning from silent to talking. And that's a big part. So on the one hand, there's the image. We're talking about yellow face and all that. And the other one is accent, that, like the way I speak English with an accent right? Uh, in film. So this is one thing. Uh, again, part of Anime One's story is that when she, you know, was so successful uh, in UK with the Piccadilly and the British British women at the time, they would cut their hair in the same kind of Anime One bang, right, kind of straight bang rather than curly, and they will, you know, paint their faces uh, ivory, you know, to to do this kind of one complexion. So I'm not talking about, you know, her fans were as crazy as the Beatles fans, but she she had a lot of followers. But then the problem arose, right, because her passion was always in theater, kind of real theater, right? live theater. So after, in the wake of Piccadilly, she was asked to um, star in this show, in the play, A Circle of Chalk, and this is kind of based on the old Chinese uh, story. The minute she spoke, <laughs> and we're talking about Shakespeare's town, I mean London, right, this is a real serious British theater, her accent came out. She had this kind of Californian Valley girl accent. And of course, you know, British critics were appalled by that. And that's when she realized that she needed to have a better accent because film was also making the transition, like I said, from silent to talkie. So she spent a lot of money hiring a tutor from Oxford. And eventually she came back to America 
1930, sporting uh, an upper-class British accent. So that's how you know hard she worked in order to survive all the transitions in the technology, in the industry, but in the cult- in culture, uh, in the society in general. Yeah, and kept on keeping on. Like you say, she coached Barbara Stanwyck. She coached. She's there, knowing that she should have that role, <laughs> knowing mm-hmm. damn well. And and I'm sure they did too. But she still did it, and she still kept going. And you know, a lot of other people would have gone. This isn't for me. But she was like, No, this absolutely is for me, and you'll know why. And I think that's also her reaction every time something gets taken from her. She just goes, mm-hmm. Right, how can I rearrange this? Right. And that's that's what happened with the Good Earth. Do you want to talk a little bit about that episode? Yes, yeah. I know that's so. That's a very good example in terms of you know she something she really wanted, but she couldn't get it, and then she will try something else. So the Good Earth, um, based on Pro Box, you know, award-winning novel about Chinese, the saga of a Chinese farmer, the rise and fall of a Chinese, you know, farmer Wang, and uh, Anime Wang really wanted the. Their part as not the farmer but the farmer's wife, Olan. And this is really the biggest China film all those years. Everybody was talking about it, waiting for it. It's like the Barbie movie of you know mid 1930s, <laughs> and it was a big budget, biggest budget ever. And uh, uh, MGM hired a, an army of coolie laborers to carve you know a California hillside and turn it into Chinese rice paddy. It took them four years, and that's how big the investment was. So the, uh, imagine Anime Wang's all these years, she you know, made all these films and uh, apparently very talented, impressive, and she really wanted that. But of course, the minute um, Paul Mooney was cast as Farmer Wong, Anime Wang knew that it's hopeless because, once again, the, the ban, taboo on interracial kissing or romance and when you have a Caucasian male lead, it's not possible really to have an Asian, you know, female lead. And of course, the, the role eventually went to Louise Rayner. To be fair, she actually was very good by Hollywood standards, let's say. And she won actually Oscar for that role, for the you know yellow face role. And Anime One was really heartbroken. It's not just an insult to her, really, as today a lot of you know Asian American film scholars would say was really um, an insult to the entire Asian-American community because, as one critic said, it could have been our uh, Gone with the Wind, right? It could have been made because it really... So the film eventually you know, ended up casting mostly Asian-American actors as ambience, as the background, minor roles. The most sinister part of this is that Anime One's young sister, Mary, actually got a very small part of it as like a young bride. So that's... Mary's kind of debut in Hollywood, but there was, as you see, that actually did her in, right? Eventually, Mary, or, you know, unfortunately died of suicide. And after years of depression, and especially looking at her big sister's kind of career, uh, declining as soon as she hit like late, late 30s or early 40s. And that was not a very something Mary will look forward to. So unfortunately, so so Big Earth did a lot, not just to Anime Wang, you know, her career damped her, really, her, her aspirations in a big way, an insult to the Asian American community, but again, to, to Mary as well. So And her reaction was to, she went to Hong Kong at that point, right? She went to China, yes. Yeah, uh-huh. to China. Yeah. So the heartbreaking part of that is that she went there, had had enough with this kind of treatment, and then was lambasted there too, so she couldn't win. Why? So yes, interestingly, the Chinese reaction, you know, the criticism. Uh, so anyway, look, let's back up a little bit. So when Hawk was broken, you know, for failing to get a, the big role in uh, Big Earth, she went to China in 1936, and this right before the Sino-Japanese War. So she went there really right before, let's say, Shanghai and Hong Kong, especially Shanghai. You know, pre-war Shanghai was a crazy place, right? And she went there for two reasons. One is to see her father now retired kind of comfortably to, to Canton for his ancestry ancestry land because his laundry was destroyed, you know, during the construction of the Union Station, the train station in LA, which basically relocated, dispersed the entire uh, Chinese community, right? So the Chinatown today is in a different place, place. actually. Uh-huh. Um, the original Chinatown was gone. So anyway, so that's one 
reason she went to you know China to see her father, but also her siblings. Some of them were working or living in China. And the other reason, once again, speaking of adaptation, tenacity, she was actually since you know her heart got broken by Hollywood, she actually wanted to、uh, commit herself to promoting Chinese theater, Chinese play, that kind of classical Chinese opera and everything. An art, you know, she really admire and she really want to 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 study. And with the hope of promoting it, you know, globally. So she went there, and of course, she was caught up in the whirlwind of Shanghai craziness. And she thought, "Wow, Shanghai! Like compared to Shanghai, Santa Monica, Hollywood is like backwater." You know? <laughs> <laughs>、yeah. and, and of course, there she had really mixed receptions. On the one hand, Chinese were happy that、um, you know they have a global star, right,、uh, among them. On the other hand, a lot of, especially Chinese men, were offended for again for her. So the, some of the roles she played, such as you know,、uh, Toll of the Sea, Madam Butterfly, or Daughter of the Dragon, you know,、uh, Doctor Fu Manchu. But most of it, I think, is mostly due to、uh, sexism, of course, right? Gender bias. I, I guess、uh, the West, America, UK, did not have the monopoly, you know, on, on sexism. No, far, far from it. So she had a very mixed reaction, I would say.、Uh, to just to, to compare, for instance,、uh, when her co-star in many of the films and her really her best friend Warner Olin, right, who's famous for playing Doctor Fu Manchu, and for me especially、uh, Charlie Chan,、uh, Warner Olin also went to China for a very brief visit in 1936, and Chinese re- really welcomed him, adopted him as the Chinese son. Conveniently forgetting, of course, that he also played Doctor Fu Manchu, and those films were banned in China. But when it comes to Anime One, they just picked on her in the sense, of, okay, oh, you did this, but you also did that. Therefore, that's kind of bad. Whereas, you know, Warner Olin, oh, great, you played Detective Charlie Chan. That's a really positive image of a Chinese, and they they flocked him. So when they eventually、uh, Anime One and Warner Olin met up in Shanghai, they were like I said, they were really best friends. It's kind of interesting. For me to describe that meeting over Chinese dim sum, these <laughs> two Hollywood icons, you know, made a career out of portraying Chinese, but from very different kind of angle and for very different reasons as well. So I sense a lot of irony and、uh, in history.、Right? Double standards, yeah. Obviously, there's there there are a lot of sources. She was a movie star. She, you know, she was in the press and all the rest of it. But where did you have to delve in to get those stories? The American history anecdotes and placing her in that context. So let. Let me just put it this way. So the difficulty of writing about Anime Wong is that、um, she's a very private person. Okay, during her life, she's very discreet, introvert. Actually, that's really part of her personality. Despite the appearance of being a flapper and outgoing and everything, actually deep down, she's kind of very private, introvert, and she's definitely not the kind of film star who will make、uh, profit out of her scandals. Right, she will not publicize. I mean, today we have a lot. You know, most that's the, like the trade, the secret. You know, to be success is to make profit from your scandals. And any news is good news, but not for her. So that's kind of part that kind of difficult to capture as a biographer, right? And、uh, on the one hand, I had to respect her privacy in a sense. So let's talk about like her sexuality, right? And it's always rumored that she's bisexual, and definitely that's you know proof of that. Her you know relationship to Marlena Dietrich, and from, you know described from the from the innocent eye of Maria, you know Dietrich's、uh, seven-year-old daughter, and you know Maria will see you know her mother and anime one this Chinese person spending time in her mother's trailer all those time with no clothes. And、she had no clue what the hell is going on, <laughs> but it's a kind of innocent eye. And there's all, of course, biographies of other film stars who will be more willing to share more, but not with Anime One. So as a biographer, my biggest lament, like she never really had a one big, you know, heartbreaking, whether good ending or bad ending, kind of romance that that one can write about.、Mm. But on the other hand, that's really, I think, that's. Part of kind of vintage、uh, anime one charm. If you don't mind me saying this, it,、uh, in the preface of my book, I call her really a study of inscrutability in a sense. 
you know, there's a showing and withholding a lot of times is really the auto narrative and an auto performance as well. And I think her personality, her trajectory and everything is really, you know, speaks to me that way. It's that's part of my fondness for her legacy and her personality as well. But there are, fortunately, over 200, you know, letters that she wrote to friends and everything, you know, archived at different locations, uh, especially like Yale University. And of course, one thing I found out, you know, during the research, she turned out to be a, a great writer. And that's not something many people know about. So we're talking about a film star, a fashion icon, actually also a brilliant writer. She barely finished high school. Okay. And how did she learn to write so well? So because she published like serialized letters so during her trip to China, for instance, you know, she published at least six serialized uh, letters in newspapers and these are like travelogues so when my editor was you know going through my manuscript and he called me and said like yunta do you think enemy one has a ghostwriter (laughs) (laughs) oh come on bob no one would you know no one would uh, hire a ghostwriter to write personal letters i mean would you you're writing to your aunt or to your to your close friend. I mean, why would you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's really interesting. So the introvertedness, I think, is part of it because this is a force of nature. This is someone who, with a big personality and and talent that she wants to share and she needs to express herself. I mean, obviously, this is a conjecture now, but, you know, she ended up having an alcohol problem later in life. And, you know, having gone down that road of keeping everything in, and just making the best of it and keeping on keeping on. It has to have an outlet one way or another, right? And you talked about her sister. That was her way of dealing with that or not dealing with it. And I think that's tantamount, I think, to her controlling what must have been... Mm -hmm. I mean, she must have been so angry at the treatment. Constantly, (laughs) you know. And I think that that's, you know, and then as a woman in in Hollywood, but before her untimely death because she died at 56 is that right she was age yes. 56 she had a couple more triumphs right i mean she had yes. the tv show which i think mm-hmm. i mean if anyone out there wants to make it again because i just think the the, the whole premise which was written for her yes. that's really important to see that she was still had that kind of kudos that someone decided mm-hmm. yes she can hold her own and and be the central force in a, in a brand new tv series do you want to talk a little about that please uh, yeah well, the TV series, you know, Madame Song's gallery was star her as the owner of an antique shop who became a detective, right? I think today it will be perfect for Netflix or for, you know, Amazon Prime, really. It's, it's a mini series. She's way ahead of everybody, really, in that regard. But unfortunately, it was not a very successful series. And we don't no longer have the reels, even when the company went belly up. They threw, for some reason, they threw the, the films into East River. And so we can only rely on the, you know, contemporary kind of reviews to, to get a sense of how successful that was. So you're talking about bottling up, you know, uh, losing uh, your head over these things, uh, the failures, heartbreaks and everything. The last decade or so of her life uh, is a constant struggle against disappointment. And, uh, and so she took to the bottle. Uh, unfortunately, right? She was addicted to TV on their hands. She also became a heavy drinker. And that's why the reason she really died quite young at the age of 56. And here she was also on the verge of, again, making a big comeback, right? Uh, so Sunset Boulevard, right? Uh, the, the classic <laughs> Hollywood story about Norman, their Desmond and all that, waiting for the big comeback watching your, the reruns of your own old films and past glory and everything, that's actually Anime Wong in, in, to some extent. Uh, with the difference is that Anime Wong actually never wanted to watch her old movies, actually. I guess she just couldn't bear watching them, knowing how, you know, how beautiful she was and the glory she had, past glory. So that way she's different, but also different from Norma Desmond, Anyone was literally on the verge of making a big comeback because uh, the Flower Drum song, the Broadway musical now being adapted for the screen, was going to cast Anime Wong uh, as uh, An Liang. The role eventually went to Anita Hall, an African-American actor. And so that role would have you know, given Anime Wong a big comeback in a sense like I said, you know, if you look at her career, she's not just a film icon. She's also very good on theater, dancing. She was, one part of her trade was a vaudeville performance. And she's actually can do a lot of things. 
but you can do anything. Jack, jack of all trades or train, queen of all trades, in some extent. And uh, so when she died of a heart attack uh, in, at her home in Santa Monica, you know, the film script, the script of Flower Drum Song was lying next to her. So she was literally working diligently till the last minute of her life, trying to, you know, make it. And the Flower Drum Song, as you know, really became a big... So having missed the good earth, the Flower Drum Song would have given her another chance. Yeah, to know that that was there by her bedside and we'll never get to see it. Gosh. Moving on then to her legacy and, and, and where we're at in Hollywood and, you know, in, in film... TV now. Gemma Chan, who is about to play her uh, new biopic, which is great, can't wait to see that, has said, Anime Wong was a trailblazer, an icon and a woman ahead of her time. Her talent and her exploration of her art both in and outside of the US was groundbreaking. And the challenges and prejudices she faced in the early 20th century as an actress speak directly to the conversations and the world we are navigating today. So, you know, we talked a little bit about Lucy Liu, Michelle Yeoh. They've been vocal in that respect too. How far have we moved on? Where are we at? So I'm an optimist in my head, but uh, <laughs> pessimist in reality. And if you look at back history, and that's why I'm kind of interested in history in a sense, to see how far we are travel, right? So I wrote this book in the middle of pandemic. And um, on the one hand, we are celebrating Lucy Liu's Dawn, Walk of Fame Hollywood, Michelle Yeoh eventually winning Oscar. But we're also talking about Donald Trump calling Kong COVID like the Kung Flu and Chinese or Asians were attacked in Chinatown during the pandemic because of COVID, for that matter. So today, in a nutshell, the Animal One story tells us that America or the world, you know, fell in love with her because of her look, and she, her beautiful, her talent, the appearance and uh, her, her voice and everything. But on the other hand, that romance, especially for America, that romance became a taboo because of her look, right? You know, because she was Chinese. So the gist of the story is that she was living at a time when Chinese were regarded as too Chinese to play Chinese. So today we are still talking about look, right? So in terms of how people look, and uh, I don't know about in UK and America, you know, when it comes to job, college admission, or just a traffic stop, uh, what you look like still decides the outcome of any little encounter or drama. So in that sense, we're not that far away from you know, the age of anyone. So, so we still have a long way to go, certainly. And uh, once again, we do need to know exactly what happened in order to figure out you know, how far we have traveled and how much longer we need to go. And nothing's a straight line. Any researcher into history or anyone that reads history books will understand that these things, especially gender studies, female studies, there are many pockets of moments where women had power and were empowered, but within that Mm -hmm. there's all sorts of nuance and light and shade and stuff going in and out depending on the circumstances. So, you know, it might seem that things are on the up, but they can always Mm -hmm. take a turn. So, yeah, I'm an optimist too, but the reality is human beings... So on the legacy tip, do you think she was conscious of her own? I mean, she was anyway, because obviously she was conscious of everything she was doing in her career because people had plenty to say about it. But what do you think she wanted her legacy to be back then? Reading her letters, for instance, you will figure out exactly what she was thinking at the time. Just give you an example. For instance, uh, there was one film you know, in which she had a very big part. It's about China, of course, what else? And she wrote to her friend and said, this is a pure hokum. <laughs> like, this film is p- pure nonsense. On the other hand, she took Hollywood hokum very seriously. And that's really, in a sense, if you ask me how she want her legacy to be, I guess, I think she didn't look that far. I mean, she really need to make it. And she had to deal with this, like, the biggest irony in her life. Like I said, she's too Chinese, considered too Chinese to play a Chinese. And how do you deal with that? So she would say, yeah, this is pure nonsense. On the other hand, I, I need to be part of this nonsense in order to do whatever I can to, to undo it, in a sense, uh, in, in her limited uh, capacity in that environment. So that's really how we need to understand her legacy. There's so much more to it. So read the book. Well, we need to understand what a fun person she was, I think. <laughs> you know, in her late years, despite the alcoholism and the, and the depression and everything, and she will play poker and drink with friends. And she will tell jokes. And some of them are corny jokes. But the one joke I really like uh, is that, you know, she will blow like a, you know, a ring of cigarette smoke and let it settle and they say, 
you know what? You know, fifty million Chinamen cannot be all Wangs. You know, Wang <laughs> Wang. You know, she she always loved the the rhyme of her name, and so she's that kind of person. Earlier, I think you asked me like, what if there's one question you ask her? You know, I had the same question from years ago when I wrote about Siamese twins, and Terry Gross on Fresh Air asked me like, if you have, if you could ask Chingan and Bunker today one question, what would it be for me for Anime Wang? The real question I I wanted to ask her is that, did you have fun? Because that's really as on a personal level,、uh, admiring her to from the distance really. You know, we're given all the heartbreaks and the pains, kind of almost like foot binding sort of kind of constraint.、Uh, did you have fun?、Right? I guess that's the most important part for anybody in life. And I guess the fun had to at least outweigh the not so fun in order to keep going, right? In order for her to、right. keep pursuing it. I think there's a burning need when you're that talented. There's a burning need to express yourself. I think in any medium, right?、Mm-hmm. Interesting. I bet that that won't be a simple answer from her. <laughs> <laughs> And she will say, "Oh, give me another drink." <laughs> <laughs> And you'll be like, "Fine, we've got all night." <laughs> I mean, she'd definitely be at my dinner party. You know, when people ask, I think she's fantastic. And then the last fun question, in the same vibe as the question you've asked her, what would her superpower be if she were a superhero? Look into your eyes and steal your soul. <laughs> that's really the daughter of Manchu. You know, on the other hand, you know, you should understand because that's legendary. You know, the so-called Manchu's power when he looks into your eye and then he will come to your into your dream and control you later on. What would she do with that power? Then that's the crux, right? That's the difference. Yeah, well, you have to ask her about that. Yeah, well, that's my question <laughs> then. Okay. Yeah, that'll be your question. If you have that power, what would you do with it? Right, because you know, if you were, you had the ability to change things the way you you wanted them to be, again,、mm. that's another three drinks, I think. <laughs> Ah,、oh, fantastic! Thank you, Yun. That's that's been a, a whirlwind tour through、uh, an a, amazingly fascinating life. That, as your book shows, her trajectory it took in quite a few world events, and she's there at the dawning of film. She's someone who I think once people do get to know her, they want more. She's just endlessly fascinating to me. So thank you very much for being here, everyone. You need to go and buy the book "Daughter of the Dragon: Anime Wong's Rendezvous with American History." You need to get it now. Thank you very much, Yunt. And I mean, I'm so jealous. I'm sure it's going to be a beautiful day there in Santa Barbara. Oh yes, it is. Well, thank you, Lindsay, for having me, and it's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Just a little note from me. To say, please find us on Instagram and followers. Also, subscribe and tell your friends about this podcast because we need people to listen and to pass it on so that we can grow and keep creating these wonderful episodes about people that you should know about. Add, subscribe, rate, do all those things that help us get out there, and we'll see you soon in Heroin City. <laughs> <laughs>